chapter 9, uh, Acts chapter 9, while you're turning there, um, just sort of a, a note, I guess, um, it's our practice here, at least it has been so far, uh, to do Advent sermon series every other year. Um, so I guess this is a 90, so we must be doing them every even year. Um, so in an even numbered year, we do an Advent sermon series in December, uh, and in the odd numbered years, we continue on in uh, whatever book of the Bible we're preaching through at the time. It's We generally are preaching uh, through uh, books. That's our, our normal practice. We have taken uh, breaks from time to time for uh, other series, uh, but it's our normal practice to work our way uh, context by context through books of the Bible. Uh, Acts chapter 9. It's also our practice to stand when we read God's Word, but um, you're talking... I'm not going to read all of the end of 9 and all of 10 and then the first half of 11. We're not going to read all of that, uh, but that would, be, that would be more than would be uh, fair to ask you to stand. So just remain seated. Uh, beginning in Acts chapter 9, verse uh, 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, these cities, uh, he came down also to uh, the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, that's about three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending 
being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would teach us, grow us, use this, Your Word, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. Uh, You know, Santa has um, a couple of lists. Uh, Santa has a naughty list and he has a nice list. And uh, the goal, of course, is to be on the nice list, not on the naughty list. Um, But he keeps a list based on uh, how good you are all year long, in theory, all year long. Elf on the Shelf tells us really only December matters. I guess you get double points in December to make up for June and July or whatever. I don't know. Um, but he keeps a list. If you're naughty, if you're bad, if you're doing things you shouldn't do, you end up on the naughty list. And it's all based on your performance. It's all based on how you do throughout the year. If you're good enough, if you're, if you're better than not or better than most, you get your name on the nice list. And those are the people that get really good presents at Christmas. And if you're on the naughty list, you get like coal. Um, I have a feeling you and I have naughty and nice lists in our head. Now, maybe we wouldn't recognize it like this. Maybe we wouldn't admit this. But we have in our heads, we have our own sort of running naughty and nice list. Except, it's not really so much about Christmas presents. We do things like, that guy is so naughty... And then in our heads, we, we would never say it like this, but this is kind of what we mean. I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna bother evangelizing that guy. He's so far gone, it would be a waste of my breath to introduce him to Jesus. Or the flip side, we bump into somebody with really good manners at the grocery store. And we assume that's a Christian. They don't need Jesus. We have a running naughty and nice list that we use to evaluate whether or not to evangelize someone. To to tell someone about Christ. They can be too bad that we don't bother. They can be too good that we think they must not need Jesus. Well, this passage actually shows us people who are both too far gone and too good for the gospel. And so first, the gospel comes with power to heal. Peter's traveling through uh, these cities, these, this region that actually Philip was in just uh, at the end of chapter 8. Uh, and Peter, it appears, is visiting these believers, visiting the churches in these towns. Philip presumably was planting churches, and now Peter is sort of following behind uh, to encourage the saints, to uh, encourage and equip the, the churches there. Incidentally, this has absolutely nothing to do with the text, but this is just sort of a side comment, I guess. You know, from the beginning, 
our church budget actually has this as a line item. Now, it doesn't have any money in it right now, but that will come as we grow. But, but we put in from the start a line item. We want to make sure we mark out our goal is to send elders to visit missionaries that we support. Well, part of that comes from this right here. This is the pattern uh, that Peter uses. Philip has planted churches, and now Peter's following behind and visiting the churches and the saints there. And there he meets in Lydda, he meets a man, Aeneas, who's been paralyzed for eight years. We've, we've done this before. You feel like every now and then you, you get to healing passages and the illustrations all become the same. You know what happens to your muscles after eight years of not walking. You don't have any. There, there aren't any left. Your bones would be too weak to hold you up. I have a feeling that, that if you're laying on a mat all the time and you're that paralyzed, I bet your inner ear, I, I, should, I, I could ask people, I bet your inner ear forgets how to balance you when you stand upright. But your body's just shot. It's gone. Eight years of, of not being able to, to walk, not being able to move, to live on his own. And yet Peter comes to Aeneas in verse 34. And notice what Peter says. He doesn't say, Aeneas, I can help you. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. And then you see that word that we see so frequently after healing events. Immediately. And immediately, he rose. Immediately, he got up, made his bed. Immediately, he was healed. Immediately, he was well. The gospel comes to Aeneas' life with the power to heal even this paralysis. And it heals him completely and promptly. There's no delay. There's no mostly. There's no... He had most of his energy, but not quite all of it. Immediately, he was healed. Same thing in Joppa. There, uh, a disciple, disciple Tabitha, uh, her Greek name is Dorcas, um, gets sick and dies. Dorcas is known for caring for other people. She's known for making clothes, for making garments, for making coats. She's known for being generous and kind and loving to other people. And she died. And it's interesting that it's not until after her death that messengers are sent to Peter. Now, maybe they didn't know Peter was in Lydda at the time. Maybe it was after the fact that they found out. But they, they washed her. They put her in this upper room. And only then did they send for Peter to come and uh, to, to, to help, to heal, to do whatever he could. And again, Peter's seen this. Peter was standing there when Jesus healed the lame, when Jesus brought to life people that had died. 
He'd seen this a couple of times in Jesus' earthly ministry. And Peter knows that only Jesus can heal. Only Jesus can raise the dead. And so he says, he's in the upper room. And the first thing he does, he puts everyone out, verse 40, and then he knelt down and prayed. Peter recognizes he doesn't have the authority to raise the dead. Only Jesus can. And so he prays first. And then says Tabitha, rise. When people are healed like this, when the physical effects of the curse are undone, we're reminded all over again that that's exactly what Jesus was born to do. Jesus was born to reverse the curse. Jesus was born to undo the effects of the fall from Genesis 3. He came to undo, He came to fix all that we broke. And so in these moments, when Aeneas is able to get up and walk because the physical effects of the fall are now rid, gone from his body, when Tabitha is able to get up and, and serve others again because death has been removed from her body, you get a glimpse, you get a foretaste of the life to come. See, that's, that's resurrection life brought into this world. That's resurrection effects. That's new creation effects brought into this creation. That's what Jesus was born to do. And so they get a a taste. They get a a foretaste. We get a glimpse of the power and authority of Jesus over everything the fall can throw at you. You're dealing with relationship problems? Jesus is greater than that. You're dealing with physical problems? Struggles and sickness and disease, Jesus is greater than that. You wrestle with depression at Christmas, Jesus is greater than that. But let me make this observation. You know, in the New Testament, there are only six people raised from the dead. One of them is Jesus, which means there's five. Jesus performs three of those resurrections. Peter and Paul, one each. In other words, that's not supposed to be normal, everyday pattern of our lives. You may wonder, well, if, if this is what Jesus came to do, then why, does it ha- why doesn't it happen more often? Why, does it, why don't we see it more frequently? Because it's intended to be temporary. It's intended to be just a taste, just evidence of the authority and the power and the right of the disciples, of the apostles, to proclaim the gospel message that they are proclaiming. These healings serve a purpose that is designed to be Temporary Evidence that the gospel is true. Evidence of the authority and the ministry of the apostles. The gospel 
came with power to heal. But I want you to see too, the gospel also came with power to destroy. Because what we find in chapter 10 is a man named Cornelius, a Roman Gentile centurion. But he's a God-fearing centurion. He's a, he's a believer of sorts. What that means, that's describing a Gentile who, who believes in the God of the Bible, who prays, who gives generously. That's how he's described. But he's never been circumcised and he's not welcomed into the, the temple or the synagogue. So he's, he's devout in the sense that he's, he's there with the Jews, except he's never received uh, the sign of the covenant and he doesn't keep the dietary food laws. And one of the things we've noticed, if you're available, if you're ever available on a Thursday at noon, here in town. We've got a men's Bible study that meets at Sean Webb's office. Uh, one of the things we've talked about several times uh, throughout the last several months is the way God's providence works before anybody has any idea they need it. So God comes to Cornelius and reveals to him, there's a guy, Peter, and, and you need to go send some people to go get Peter. And those people are on their way before Peter has any idea that there's anything going on that might involve him. Right? In Peter's mind, he's, he's staying with Simon the Tanner in Joppa. He's one midday up on the roof and he's praying and he, he gets hungry and he says, hey, I could use some food. Not knowing that... that Seemingly right down the street are a couple of guys coming to meet him because they were sent from, from, uh, from Cornelius, uh, from Caesarea, a couple of days ago. We frequently commented at our, this Thursday Bible study how God's providence was at work and you didn't see it until days, weeks, months, years later. Peter has a vision, verses 11 to 13. He's, he's hungry. He wants uh, lunch. Um, and he sees this vision of a giant sheet with all these animals on it uh, being lowered down. And then a voice that says, Peter, eat. Kill and eat. Take what you want. Eat whatever you like. Eat whatever looks delicious to you. And you hear Peter's response. Um, I've, I've never eaten unclean animals before. Now, you and I have to go back to that part of our Bibles that um, where the pages are still stuck together. Uh, the part of the Bible that the binding is still kind of tight because we don't, it doesn't seem to stay open. Leviticus. Right? That's the part of when you, you know, we're a week and change away from a new year and, and you have your New Year's resolution to read through the Bible in a year. This is the part of the Bible where you go, I'm just not going to make it. In Leviticus 11, we read an entire chapter on Jewish dietary food laws. 
These are the animals that are clean and therefore you can eat them. These are the animals that are unclean and therefore you can't eat them. And it has to do with whether or not they chew the cud and or have a split hoof. And if they do this and not that, then you can eat it. But if they do both, then you're fine. And if they do that one but not that one, then you can't eat that one either. And it's all that's why you and I tend to um, stop our yearly Bible reading in Leviticus. These food laws are one of the ways that God separated His people from the nations around them. There are ways, uh, a way for us to realize, oh, that's right, God is a holy God and we are not holy. Uh, that He is completely other and, and we are not worthy. Uh, that we violate His law daily in, in thought, word, and deed. And so, on this sheet that Peter sees, not every animal... There's a pig on the sheet. There's bacon on the sheet. Unclean. Peter, I can't eat that. I I don't eat pork because it doesn't meet the clean law standards of Leviticus 11. And yet God says, look, there's clean and unclean animals on this sheet. Get up, kill, and eat. And you hear Peter's response in verse 14, I've never eaten anything unclean. There's a claim there of righteousness. Don't miss. Don't miss his claim. I've never eaten anything I'm not supposed to eat. I have kept this law perfectly. And yet... It's interesting in verse 17, he still doesn't, he understands the meaning of the vision. You can eat what you want. That's why he responds, I've never eaten anything unclean. But he doesn't understand the purpose of the vision, even in verse 17, because, because there he says, I'm inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had, he had seen might mean. He knows what it means, he just doesn't understand why he's seen it. He doesn't understand what's going on. These food laws separated Jews from Gentiles. It separated God's, um, God's chosen Israelite people from the Gentile nations around them. Such that, inevitably what happens when you have these, these laws that separate you from others, you begin to see the others as unclean. To the Jews, Gentiles were dogs. And that's not sort of the, the, what, the early 2000s, hey, what's up, dog? How you doing, dog? It's not that. It's, it's in a bad, in a really negative, bad connotation. It was a derogatory term. And so that Jews couldn't eat with Gentiles. Jews couldn't eat food that belonged to Gentiles because it may very well have been sacrificed to some pagan god. And so they were separating themselves from the Gentiles. And now you and I know, we read verse 17 and we know why. Peter still is perplexed. What have I had this vision for? You and I are going, wait a minute. I think I see what's going on here. Peter is going to be invited to Cornelius' house. 
He's going to have to be in the home of a Gentile, eating food set before him, whatever food Cornelius sets before him. And Peter is expected to eat and ultimately to proclaim the gospel to Cornelius. In other words, that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been destroyed. It's gone. It's been removed for good. There's no more separation, no more distinction, no more um, us and them. Uh, The Gospel is for Jew and for Gentile. It's for Jew and for Greek. And then notice Peter's words down in verse 34. Verse 34. In verse 34, Peter is now in the home of Cornelius. He's gotten Cornelius' explanation of why he's there. And so Peter, verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. I get it now. The gospel that is for me is the gospel that is for you. You are no longer a dog. You are an unbeliever in need of of saving faith in Christ. And so Peter proclaims Christ, his birth, his anointing, his earthly ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and ultimately the aim is verse 43, to him, that is to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone, not just Jewish people, that everyone who believes in Him, receives forgiveness of sins through His name. See, the reality is, until this chapter, for the Jewish people, the the Gentile was too far gone. The Gentile was unworthy of the Gospel. The Gentile was so down the naughty list that we don't bother taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And yet, ultimately, we find that the Holy Spirit comes, verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. The same Holy Spirit that they received back in Acts chapter 2, that the Samaritans have now received, now comes to the Gentiles. There's nobody on the naughty list so naughty that Christ can't save them. There's nobody who in our minds is so far gone that we wouldn't even bother telling them about Jesus. Because the truth is, in our minds, people who are paralyzed, people who are dead, people who are Gentiles, these people were unworthy of the Gospel. They were second-class citizens at best. And so ultimately we find in in chapter 11 when Peter is back in Jerusalem and, and 
and explaining, it's part explaining what happened and perhaps part defending his innocence to the saints there in Jerusalem. Look, if the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that we received can be poured out on the Gentiles, I'm not getting in the way. I'm not stopping that. I'm not putting an end to that. The birth of Jesus signals the end of Old Testament ceremonial laws. The birth of Jesus signals that that the one who has come to fulfill those laws is here. Are, Are there people on your naughty list? Are there people that you are tempted to think because so and so is blank? I'm just not going to bother talking about Christ with them. There's no reason to bother telling them about Jesus. Let me make this other observation. I I, I should have counted. I didn't. Uh, I I should count the number of times Peter has now preached some sort of sermon. It's five-ish, right? I, I find it curious that we still, he's never once shared his testimony. He doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't talk about his experience. He proclaims Christ. If we want to evangelize, we would do well to tell others about Jesus and not just about our story. In fact, the only time we see his testimony is in the next is in chapter 11 when he's with the saints and sort of giving evidence of this is what's happened and I understand this to mean the gospel is going to Gentiles too. In Christ... All the barriers between men are destroyed. The gospel comes with power to heal. The gospel comes with power to destroy. But the gospel also comes with power to renew. Let me just sort of briefly... uh, I I pointed out a few minutes ago, verse 14, when, when Peter claimed a certain amount of innocence. I've never eaten unclean animals. They've never touched my lips. Peter is claiming a, a righteousness, a, a merit of his own, on his own. He's, he's claiming this, this righteousness with regard to that law. Now, I, I want to be careful about making too much out of something the Bible doesn't seem to be making tons of, but it's here. Peter was in the room with a dead person at the end of chapter 30. I mean, at the end of chapter, in verse 32, end of chapter 9, that makes him unclean. Peter is living with Simon the Tanner, whose job it is, is to, to tan the hides of animals. That makes Peter unclean. Have you ever noticed how when we rely on the law, for our standing before God, we only rely on the ones we're good at. If we're going to stand on our merit, we're not going to bother with the laws that, that, that show, that reveal our, our sinfulness. We're going to talk about the ones that make us look good. There's something about Peter here who's, who's actually sort of taking a legalistic stand on the law. I've never eaten food like that. I've been living the last few days with a guy named Simon who's a tanner. So I'm already ceremonially unclean. 
But it's not because of eating this food. So I've got that down. I've got that right. Look, we know that Peter struggles with, with legalism. Go read Galatians. Here's your Sunday afternoon assignment. Read Galatians 2. Paul confronts Peter because Peter had been eating with Gentiles until certain people, certain Jewish leaders showed up and then he withdrew from eating with Gentiles again. I've got to... I've got to look right before these Jewish people. I've got to keep the Jewish law in front of these Jewish people. And Paul says, look, you know better than this. You know that the gospel has broken down that wall. Don't rebuild it. Don't put it back. And so we know, we'll see later when Galatians 2, I think, comes after this passage and before Acts 15. Uh, and, and, and so Peter's going to struggle with uh, legalism, with uh, resting on certain laws and yet not others. When we try to claim a righteousness according to the law, we have to be fairly selective with the laws we choose because we've broken too many of them. We know that we sin daily in thought, word, and deed. But what this passage shows us is the gospel comes to change even the nice people. Peter had some amount of merit according to the law. That's, not, that's insufficient. That's not enough. Even Peter, the apostle, needs to be changed by Christ. Christ comes to renew so that we might understand His Word and live according to it uh, to the best of our ability, but with the help of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there are people in this passage, there are people in our lives that we have on the naughty list and have decided there's no reason to tell them about Jesus. But then we also have people on the nice list who actually need Jesus. And we've decided because they're nice, we don't need to bother. That would be Peter on the nice list, on the good list, but who needed a deeper, renewed understanding of the power of the Gospel. And he's going to need it again in Galatians 2. Are you standing on Christ? Or are you standing on your merits? Are you standing on Christ or are you standing on your supposed obedience to the law? Are you standing on Christ or are you standing on your approval rating that others have of you? Are you standing on Christ or the fact that you look better than everyone else around you? Christ came to heal, to break down barriers, and to renew us even from our own self-righteousness. May we celebrate that birth this week. Let's pray together. We pray, Lord Jesus, that You would root out self-righteousness in our own hearts. Uh, where we look down on our, our down our noses on others, 
uh, because we think we're better than they are, uh, because we uh, have, have a mastery, a command of certain laws that other people don't, and so we judge them for it and look down on them for it. Uh, we pray, Lord Jesus, that You would heal us, that You would renew us, that You would conform us more and more into Your image. And Father, if there's someone here this morning who's trusting in their works rather than You, would You draw them to saving faith in Christ? If there's someone here this morning thinking they are too far gone, would You show them that there's no such thing? So work in their hearts. Bring them to saving faith in Christ. We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.